It's good to be here. Is that for me? Yeah. I thought you were timing me, but you're recording me. <laughs> All right. The last time I was here, I think there was a marriage retreat going on, and um, the rest of you were in the nursery and other places. So, you know, there was we could have done it in a circle. So it's good to see the, uh, most of the church here today. Um, it's always good to be here again, and we, we appreciated hosting you in your pilgrimage uh, to this place. And, you know, one of the neat things about uh, the association is that it reminds us that God is doing something bigger than just what He's doing right here with us. Okay, that's the great thing about the Baptist life. It's not, you know, the local church is the epicenter of what God does. It's the only organization God's put together and blessed and promised that's going to go to the end of time until new heaven, new earth, and all things are made new. But here's the thing. The local church is, is expressed in many different ways. So we have several different, well, it's about 60 churches, 65 if you count some of the missions that we have. But uh, where you used to meet, there is a deaf congregation meeting there now. And your old trailer that you used, RV, for a uh, children's facility, the deaf congregation used that. And they have now given that to another congregation, another deaf congregation that's planting in another city. So your gift to them is now being gifted to another. So you see, I tell people I'm the minister of cooperation. It's my job to make sure everybody works together so that the kingdom of God moves out uh, and it takes all of us because no one church can accomplish the Great Commission. It takes all of us. So it is good to be here and uh, to, again, to be here with most of you. I have been given Acts chapter 7. I don't know how much of Acts chapter 7 I've been given, but I thought I would just take it all. But uh, if, if you're going to, if someone's going to preach on the rest of it, I'll leave plenty of meat on the bone because we can't do all that we could do with all the, I mean, it's like three pages. Uh, it, it's uh, Steve, you know, Stephen, going back a little bit, Stephen, you know, was elected a deacon. And the church grew, and then some people got mad, and they killed him. I mean, it's the shortest deacon tenure, I think, on, on file. Uh, he, he, it's, it's really a fascinating story. You've come up to chapter 7, and I want to remind you about the last verse of chapter 6. We're going to look at that in just a moment, because uh, this question that we're going to see in verse 1, is a four-word question, are these things so? refers back to the trumped-up charges against Stephen in chapter 6. Okay, so the first, there's a question asked, are these things that we've been told about you so? And then in verse 40, I'm sorry, verse 2 through 41, we have the answer to the question in the form of an introduction to a message. So there's an introduction from verse 2 to 41. In verse 42 and 43, Stephen uses a text because we don't preach without a text, right? For the Western. And that I have to remind myself that. I get some good ideas. I think I need a text. And then we see text number two is used in verses 49 and 50, and the actual message that Stephen has for the council there is found in verses 51 through 53. And then in 54 through 60, we see the response 
Because the Word of God always demands a response. So let's look at this. I do have some pictures back here. I want you to look back again at verse 15 of chapter 6. Preceding chapter 7 verse 1. I want to remind you of the last thing that was said about Stephen before we get to today's text. It says, And all who sat on the council, looking steadfastly at him, at Stephen, saw he had his face as the face of an angel. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind, and I don't know what was said about that, but I think sometimes we think that this is the face of an angel. There it is, the face of an angel. I don't think that's what Stephen's face looked like at all. We picture kind of a childish, innocent, you couldn't kill me, could you, face? You know, which kind of puts tension to the story, and in the next chapter they stone well, let's go to the next. I want to show you a couple. I want to show you Gabriel talking to Mary from one artist interpretation. Okay? You see, that's a little bit more angelic, I think. Uh, and then let's go on to the next one where the angel of the Lord talks to John in Revelation. That's a little bit more imposing, isn't it? So, angels are really interesting. Uh, there's a lot of crazy stuff said about angels. But it's really neat. I think angels can be low-key when they need to be. I think they can really dial it up like they did, with, like, like this one did here, the angel of the Lord with, with John the Revelator, the Apostle. I think that it can be toned down a little bit like Gabriel with Mary. And then if you go back in Genesis and you see in, you know, when, when the angels came to, to Sodom, they didn't even know they were angels. Just thought they were men. So angels can go full-blown incognito. And you don't even know. In fact, the Bible says we have to be careful with strangers because sometimes we're entertaining angels unaware. So angels have different ways of looking. But when I think when they saw Stephen and the face of an angel, the reason I believe that it is a face like an angel who has dialed up his glory is because Stephen is getting ready to give a message from the Lord. And when it is a message of judgment, and an angel comes to pronounce judgment, it is a strong message, and there's a strong face there. I think about the cherubim there, uh, when, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, and the cherubim is there with the sword, the flaming sword. I don't think you'd want to try and talk your way back into the garden. I think that that was a very glorifying, frightening thing. In a couple of passages in Matthew chapter 28, uh, we would see, you don't have to look at that, but in Matthew chapter 28, verse 2 through 5, uh, right after the resurrection, it says, Behold, there's great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. So it can be a very frightening experience to see the face of an angel. So there's messengers. That's what the word translated means. It means a messenger from God. Here we have Stephen, a deacon, and he has a message to these godless people who really think they're religious. So let's take a moment here. I want to do a few things. Um, as we look at this, because we have to look at the text, notice it says in chapter... Seven, they said, are these things so? 
Now, when we start at verse 2, and we're going to go through 41, we're going to look at the answer to the question, the text, uh, and we're going to go to verse 50. Okay? We're going to look at this together. What I want you to do, I'm going to play a game, alright? It's a participation game. I want you to count how many times you see an angel mentioned. Okay? Because it's mentioned more than once. And it's really interesting that it starts out that he has the face of an angel and he can say anything he wanted to say before he gives them this hard message. And he keeps referencing back to angels and then he gives them the message. Okay? So let's look at it together. Do you all, do you all like to stand when you read the Word? Is that something that is a tradition? I know sometimes I start reading and people just jump up and stand. And, and, you know, want to go to Psalm 119 then and just kind of keep them for a while. <laughs> Why don't we do that and uh, let's err on the side of reverence. How about that? Let's, let's see. Verse 2 and following. Now remember, be counting the angels. And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and go to the land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give him for his possession and his, to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land. And they would bring them to them, and, and they would bring them into bondage and oppress them four hundred years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. Now let's stop there. You have different translations. So you count the word angels in your translation, okay? We'll see how this goes. And also remember circumcision. We just saw that. That's coming back too, all right? Let me get a drink and we'll go again. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he gave him governor and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out his fathers first, our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives and said to him, Send five people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, and he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. When the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know of Joseph. This man dwelt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born. It was well-pleasing to God that he brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was sent out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and deed. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who would be oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. 
And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were for, as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, your brethren, why do you do wrong to one another? And he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at that saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. And Moses saw it and marveled at his sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Then Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and delivered by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush? He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, and the Red Sea, and the wilderness forty years. This is Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our fathers, the one who received the living oracle to give to us, whom our fathers did, would not obey, but rejected in their hearts. They turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejected in the works of their own hand, rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven as it was written in the, prop, in the book of the prophets. Did you so offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness? O house of Israel, you also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Remphan. Images which you made to worship and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the day of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet said, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? You may be seated. May God bless the reading of His Word. Now that's the introduction to the message. And it's obvious that God was doing something because these guys want to kill Stephen. And they sat there patiently through everything you just heard. And they listened. But as you'll notice, as Stephen went back and took them from there, from, from Father Abraham, took them all the way to here today, and what God is doing, and the trump charge, one of them, was that you know the temple would be destroyed, and, and he ends it by saying, you can't build a house for God. God didn't dwell in, the, in a house that you would build. Well, he does all that it's a very scriptural introduction. Then I want you to see what happens after that. He has a message. He, here, let's, let's just go ahead and look at the message now. You don't have to stand for this. Verse 51 and following. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. 
You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. They just realized now that His old introduction was an indictment against them. Just like they always turned away from God, you've turned away from God yourself. Because you don't have the ears to hear and you don't have the heart to receive what God's doing. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Are you still counting? All right. Now, that's the message. I mean, it's a very, very uh, interesting introduction, but it was a very indicting message. So I want us to look at the message, and then I want us to look at the response. In fact, let's go ahead and look at the response, and we'll have it all in our mind. When they had heard these things, those last four verses there, it says that they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at Him with their teeth. But He, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran at Him with one accord and they cast Him out of the city and stoned Him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling out on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And so is the story of Stephen. Well, I want you to notice, again, just the time we have, I want to just notice a couple of things. Because there's just so much. We could talk about the glory of God, how it begins in the very first and it ends with the glory. We could talk about Saul, the young man Saul, the young man Stephen. You, you see all the young men in here and, and, and it, this is the only time Stephen and Saul are together. Very similar experience. Different men come from different backgrounds. But I want to just deal with this last part here and I want you to notice this. The response is that they were cut to the heart. They did two things. Actually, they were cut to the heart. They didn't do that. That was their involuntary response. They were cut to the heart. Their voluntary response was they gnashed their teeth. Now, since I said we were going to play a game, how many people got... How many angels did... Anybody give me... Did we get... Who, who got the most angels? Let's see. Did anybody get seven? Anybody get Six? I get five? Anybody? Any four? Alright, some played the game. That's good. So we got four. Three? Okay. Two? Okay, so there are three or four depending on your translation. I think that's very important because, again, this is the message and then you see the response of the message. They were cut to the heart. Now, if you think back earlier... Um, in chapter 2, and you, you all been going through Acts, right? You've been going through... Okay, if you thought back to Acts chapter 2, there was another message in 37, verse 37, when they heard the message. It says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter 
and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And then here we see that they were cut to the heart, but they gnashed their teeth. Does anybody know what gnashing of teeth is? Maybe you sometime. I don't know. Does anybody grind their teeth at night? I have to wear a mouth guard. They tell me I'm a little stressed, a little high strung. I don't know. But uh, your dentist will make a mouth guard for you because in your teeth you will grind your teeth down to nothing. You'll grind them to the gums if you don't put something in there. So I'm just kind of giving you a word of warning. If you grind your teeth, go ahead and get a mouth guard. It's okay. Um, my mouth guard, our, our little West Highland White Terrier just chewed my mouth guard. Dogs love mouth guards, by the way. Uh, you got to, don't let them hit the floor. A dog will think, oh, a chew toy, and it's gone. Um, so mine's been chewed up. I've got to get another one. But, but that's, sometimes at the end of the day, you know, I've, I've kept it cool. I've been ministerial, and I go to bed, and my teeth just kind of grind. Uh, bruxism is what the dentist calls it. It comes from the Greek word bruxo, which means to gnash or grind teeth. So that's what they did. And what they'll do is they would go, that's grinding teeth. So hard that you could chip a tooth. Just like that. That's how mad they were. So they were covering their ears and going, that's kind of frightening, isn't it? They ground their teeth. You know, I've read about that in Scripture. One time, Laura and I encountered an angry deacon. And he, he, grabbed, he gnashed his teeth. I mean, he went, I thought, I've never seen anybody do that in church before. I've read about it in the Bible, but I've never seen it in church. And he went like that. Have you ever seen a kid do that? You know, get in your seat. Buckle up. That's grinding your teeth. I'm so mad that I'm just going to gnash my teeth. Well, and the other thing it says they were cut to the heart. There's two words there for that. The one that we see here means that they were, it literally, the word means that they are sawn in two. It's like the heart is just sawn in two. Okay? Now the one in Acts chapter 2, it's, it's a piercing. Okay? It's a piercing. It's like a surgical cut. Okay? When the Holy Spirit does surgery on your heart and He's working in your life and He's doing something and you feel the conviction of the Lord from the Word of God and the Holy Spirit is surgically doing a work, making a new heart in you, doing heart surgery on you. But when you are stiff-necked and you are ready to kill someone and you're grinding your teeth, that means the Holy Spirit has spoken through the messenger of God and it's like that heart's being sawn in two because they are so angry they can kill Him. And as we find out, they did. You can be cut to the heart one of two ways. You can receive the Word and the heart surgery that God wants to do on all of us. You know, there's sometimes people are critical about saying, give your heart to Jesus. There's no better thing you can do than to give your heart to Jesus. He wants to do surgery on your heart. Those that don't want to give their heart to Jesus, their heart is sewn in two. You know, the reason why we don't like to witness sometimes is because when we're talking to someone and the Holy Spirit is convicting them, but they are not yet ready to submit to surgery, but their heart is being sawn in two, the conversation is pleasant until you get to the Lord Jesus Christ and they'll raise up on you and they'll start to get a different countenance because their heart is being cut. 
So that's what's happening here is their heart is being cut. Anger was their response. And the physiological feeling was that of a heart being cut. And the only thing they could do to respond to what they were feeling, you can either repent or you can take it out on that person. You can either let go the negative things that are going on in your life, which is they were lying about Stephen, they were trumping up charges, and then Stephen tells them the Word of God, and then he says, you guys are stiff-necked, you're just like all the others before you, you won't receive the prophet's message, in fact, you persecute them. You're uncircumcised in your ear and your heart. It's interesting... He said you have uncircumcised hearts. Did you notice that? Their heart got circumcised right then. There was a cut in the heart. And he said you're uncircumcised in your ears. Did you notice what the council did when he said what he said? They put their hands over their ears. And we think it's because they don't want to hear anymore. The Holy Spirit has circumcised their ears. Their ears are cut. Their hearts are cut. And they're going, Ugh! they're going, Ugh! because their heart's cut. They're putting their hands over their ears because their ears are cut. You can either allow the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ to do a work on your ears so that you'll have ears to hear the Word, eyes to see, a heart that receives, or you can stay like you are. So let's just take a moment of this. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37, their hearts were cut and they said, tell us more. Here their hearts were cut and they said, let's kill him. They said, in fact, if you'll notice what they said, they said, um, they cried out with a loud voice and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the last thing Stephen says is, Lord, don't lay this sin at their feet. Forgive them. Don't, don't hold it against them. You know, it's interesting as you look at this that there's two things that can be done with the heart of a human being. And I know that the heart is a physical organ, but it is also the seat of emotion and spiritual decisions as we see it metaphorically in Scripture. But there is a connection because the Bible, the, the Holy Spirit is, it did not inspire the writers of the Word of God just to randomly pick an organ. There is something about the heart. The heart is right here at the center of who we are. It's the center of our being. Life and death, it, it, the heart is integral to life and death. Now I looked this up just to make sure I was right, but there's interesting things when you look about an unrepentant heart, an unreconciling heart, an angry heart. Here's these council members. They've, they've, they've not done the right thing. They're given a chance. I believe when, when, when Stephen preached that message, they could have repented right then. They could have turned. Obviously, there was something very serious going on in their heart, their ears, their minds. But they just went right on. You know, one time I was dealing with a church member, a person who was a member of the church who couldn't let something go. And it was just eating away and eating away and eating away. And, and I remember saying, sometimes you just have to forgive everybody and you just have to let whatever's bothering you go. Now I'm going to land a plane right here so I want y'all to stay with me on this. 
That all I can, you know, all you can do is you can come with the message and say you, you got to let things go. You've got to just receive the forgiveness of God freely, and you've got to give the forgiveness of God freely. And sometimes you just got to accept that what is is, and you can't control everything. God's in control. You're not. Let it go. And this person couldn't do that. Not too long after I had that conversation in that living room of that member's home. They were in the hospital in the ER in the middle of the night. I got a call. I went. And I sat with the spouse in the, in the waiting room of the ER. And then the doctor came out in the middle of the night. It was just me and him and the person that helped him get there. And the doctor said, you know, it doesn't look good. He said, but can I ask you a question? He said, is, has your spouse been through some type of serious life event or stressful situation? Well, you know, yes, I, I, yes. And what it was is this issue that was, she couldn't let it go. And he said, well, she is suffering a heart attack from cardiomyopathy. And I looked that up to make sure. And he explained it to us right there in the room because we didn't know specifically what that meant. He said, we call it broken heart syndrome. He said, it's really not a heart attack. What happens is extreme stress and extreme uh, external forces come in and one side of the heart stops working and the other side has to work so hard that eventually this side can't do the work of both sides and it's like the heart's cut right down the middle and one half's working and the other half's not and then it just stops. Broken heart syndrome. Called about, brought about by stress. It says that they were cut to the heart. Your heart, friends, can literally be split down the middle because of something that is going on in your life. But you need to say, God, I let it go, or God, forgive me. And they have a chance right here. So I'm thinking, I've got an application I need to make today. Well, one is if you become a deacon, you can get stoned and die. So go be like Stephen, right? I don't know that we want to make that application today. There may be some time when we have to go through something like that. I know we have brothers and sisters all over the world who risk their lives to worship on this Lord's Day. That's why we pray for them. There are people who live the life of Stephen and the early followers today, right now. That's their reality. It's not ours here. But what about the council, who those who see themselves as religious, who are respected as religious people, who, who know the Word? And you know, when, when Stephen said this, he didn't say anything they didn't already know. In fact, they're waiting for him to get to the point. And he gets to the point and he says to them, you're stiff-necked. You're uncircumcised in heart and ears. So I want to ask you, does God want to do anything with your ears today? Is there something that you need to hear that He is wanting to say to you, but you're not ready to receive it? You know, the circumcision is a picture that I belong to God. That's what, and, and I mean, the early church, as you know, I don't want to get into this too much, but the early church really went into this, do you have to be circumcised or not? Because it was so vital to the Jewish faith because it reminded them of who they were and who they belonged to. But your ears, 
It's when you allow the Holy Spirit to speak and when He speaks and you listen, we're not just hearers of the Word, we're doers of the Word because if we're not doing it, we're really not hearing it the way we should. So is there something you've heard that you need to do? Is there something that you have heard and maybe you need to lay something down, you need to repent, you need to get something right, you need to make something right? I would much rather, I mean, you know, we're going to get pierced or cut one way or the other in our hearts. And if God is doing work on your heart, you get to choose to submit and you get to check in as a patient and go in, go under anesthesia and allow the Holy Spirit to do a piercing work in your heart to make you more like Jesus Christ. Or you can resist that and God will cut your heart. Because the Word of God, when the man of God swings the Word of God, there is a cut that is on the heart. And the Word of God always demands a response. And we see the response of the council that day. So I'm going to ask you about your ears and your heart. If we identify with Stephen, we pray that we'd be faithful to the end. If we identify with the other religious people in this book, we would say... Help me not to be those who did not hear and did not receive in their heart what God had for me. I want to lead us in a word of prayer. And any time of decision, I'm going to turn the service back over to you guys. Uh, but may God bless the reading of His Word and my attempt to preach it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the life of Stephen. Lord, we thank You that he willingly laid his life down and his last words were a cry of, repentance, of, of forgiveness for those who were unrepentant for what they did at that time. Lord, I pray for this church. Lord, I thank You for the life that is here. I thank You for the adults and the children. Lord, I thank You for the commitment to Your Word. I thank You for uh, all that You're doing here through this local body of believers. Lord, I pray for souls to be saved and lives to be changed. And if there's anyone here today that needs to make a spiritual decision of some kind, I pray that they would do that, Lord, that they would receive what You're giving them. I pray if You've been speaking, Lord, between what I've said and what they've heard, that Your Spirit has spoken. I pray, Lord, that whoever's here, that You're speaking a word to, that they receive it and that they would act on it today. If that is in the form of some type of public decision to become a member of this church, to express a desire to be baptized or, or to accept Christ as Savior and Lord, to respond to the gospel in that matter, Lord, we give this time to you today in Jesus' name. Amen.